Here's uh, What's Your 20? I'm your host, Carl Figueredo, and today we're joined with Wayne Bennett. Now, Wayne Bennett's been in the industry for many years. He has an extensive resume dating back to when I was looking on IMDb. 1995 as a third AD is where you started. Go further back, 1990. 1990. So yeah. back in, you started in the AD realm. Right now you work as a producer in the union Correct. land. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think or what you define or what is a producer? It all depends because there's many different kinds, as you know, Carl, of different kinds of producers and what they all do. And then what's in television also differs what's in feature film. So what I'm doing now is I'm a line producer, for lack of a better description. My credit is produced by, and it's kind of that bridging that really big gap between financial and logistical and creative, Um, making sure that we're staying on budget, staying um, and delivering, staying on budget, staying on schedule delivering the scripts that are being written to the best of our abilities for the amount of money that's being given, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, as you know, that it's, it kind of ebbs and flows depending on the project, but that's kind of what my position is. Um, You get into, in a television world, there's executive producers that have usually created the show or are really heavily in the creative realm. Like if you get writer producers that are executives, um, then you get producing directors that are producers as well as directors, and they're still there to keep the eye on the on the creative of the show, not so much of as well as the direction of the show, not as much as the logistics and financial. So the line producer and the producing director work hand in hand in television. My job in a feature film world would be called an executive producer, which is really kind of goofy and doesn't really make sense, but that's that's what they say. So then when you look at a feature film credits and you see like you know, you get Deadpool produced by Ryan Reynolds. It's more the producer is more of the creative side of it, where then the logistics and the financial stuff is an executive producer. Interesting. And you spoke a little bit about uh, budget and making sure that the budget's maintained, even at a line producer level. So what we know already from speaking to other people is that even a PM's able to make a budget and follow a budget, the producer and the line producer. How did the world sort of collide with budget making? And how do you differ with the different departments about your budget? Is there, is there a structure? or is Well, there's really only one. At the end of the day, there's one budget that you finally finish that is a collaboration of the production manager and all and the producers that are on the ground. It's a collaboration. Then if we're talking television, then you get into an amortization budget, which is all the things that stretch over the length of the project mm-hmm. being in rent or in utilities or, or purchases that the costume department makes us for the entire show. Then you have a pattern budget, which is what you are allowed to spend episodically. So all those people, PM producers, the producing director, and your accountant all put all the information in to come to one budget. Feature films, it's the same group of people, but you come into one budget, and this is how much we're going to set out to spend for the entire show. So did I answer your question? Or No, I, I think that makes sense. It, it is a collaborative effort it uh, is. To, to build this one budget. So someone is someone in charge of it? So you'd be in charge of overseeing all these different departments when they pull it all together? Or? Yeah. So again, if we're talking television or if we're talking feature films, there's it, it's, different. It, it's the same process, but just in kind of different ways of going about it. In television, 
I'll sit down at the beginning when I start my show and I'm doing working with the accountant saying if the studio is giving us this much money for an episode, then we have to back into that number and the amortization budget. And, and we all work together to try to get it there that is as real as possible. You don't want to overestimate and you certainly don't want to underestimate. So we all collectively, and then once that budget, just before you go to camera, they're called locked. We now lock those budgets in a feature film. You lock the budget. If it's 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, that's how much you're going to spend on that project. If it's episodic television, for me, like my last show, we had to hit after the tax credits, 3.8 million US per episode. So then that's how we have to, you know, now you get into it episodically because you get your scripts every six or seven or eight days. And then you work with the department heads and the department heads feed you the budgets based on what they're reading. And then sometimes creatively things have to change to fit into the box. Okay. We can't afford that location because it's, you know, ridiculously expensive. Okay. Yes. So now it's not a high end restaurant. It's a smaller cafe on the side of the road. So could you speak a, a little bit more about that? How do you work with the creatives to a, fit your budget essentially like you just mentioned that you don't have enough budget so we have to do a cafe on the side of the road right how how do you work through that process is it with the writers is it with the director in television it's with the writers in television it's really a, a writer showrunner creator kind of medium you work with them to adjust the scripts to fit the amount of money that the studio wants to spend if you're looking at bigger budget shows Game of Thrones, Yellowstone, The Crown, whatever, it's almost like they want to spend the money to deliver the creative. Mm. So then it, there is no, there's, it's more of the producer, the line producer saying, okay, this is the script. It's going to cost $15 million. Mm. And the studio says yes. Where in broadcast television, which is what I've been doing for the last year or last three years, you have a finite amount of money. This is how much you're allowed to spend. You certainly don't want to go over, and you don't even really want to be under budget mm -hmm. by a lot because it kind of hurts you as well. You just, you read a script and go, okay, well, there's 50 horses in here. 50 horses are going to cost $50,000 for three days. Yep. We can't afford that. And we go back to the writers and say, does it have to be horses? And, and try to then give them the creative challenge mm -hmm. of how do we change the story to still tell the story but then fit into the financial box. And there it's a tough thing for for showrunners and and writers especially in broadcast television because we have air dates, we have to hit it, we can't push. Streaming's a little bit different because you know they shoot so many up front and they have a little bit more flexibility. Mm. But in broadcast television it's deadlines, deadline, 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 which is kind of what's happening right now if it, actors don't get a deal, the whole back end of the broadcast television season's probably gone. Definitely, because that's uh, one thing I've been thinking about lately. If we're not filming anything right now, then that means we can't edit. Oh, eventually we're going to run out of things to, to produce. Correct. Correct. And uh, we, we get backed up into a corner, and eventually there's nothing that we can shoot, which I'd say in a pipeline would start increasing the amount of, for lack of a better word, crap that will be coming into 100%. it. <laughs> 100%. And the benefit of getting the writers back when we did in this particular juncture is they needed, in a lot of episodic television, six to eight weeks to write two or three episodes to mm -hmm. get the show up and going. Now, okay, that part's going, but then it gets to the point where if we're not filming by a certain date to edit and, you know, some of the higher-end shows with visual effects and post-production, you can't just, you do them quick, it looks like 
crap, yep. as you just said. <laughs> and and then they all want them to air by the end of January because that's what's left of the advertising dollars that they've spent money on. So it's really a money thing. Yep. And you know the broadcast networks don't want it to go past end of May, which is historically the normal broadcast television season. Now, is this uh, the deadlines that we're speaking of? Is this something that you would put onto your crew and you get given the deadlines or who works out the deadlines? Which deadlines are you referring to? So I would say uh, we, we spoke about when you give a rider a deadline that they have to make all the changes by a certain time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we're going to camera, all these changes have to already be made. Do your show deadline, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, when you get onto a project uh, and they're like, this is how much money we can give you. Uh, do they come up with, we need it to air by this date, and you come up with all the deadlines prior to that? Or yeah. yeah, you come up with a production schedule and you work with your post-production department to say what do they need to be able to edit and complete it, mix it, you know, final picture, final edit, delivery. They hit that date. We work backwards from there. So if your show needs to air, if it, again, if it's broadcast te- yep. television and it's going to air September 28th, you work back from there. Okay, what's your post schedule? What do we need to prep? When it's a new series, if it's a new show, like I needed nine weeks to build the stage sets of my last project to be able to shoot. Well, we didn't make that, so then we're pulling the next episode up. So then it mm-hmm. becomes a juggle. What can you do to keep the machine running? Because it's it's... I have a saying, it's called, once the train leaves the station, there's really nothing that's going to stop it. Yeah. You, in Whether it's feature films, whether it's television, you can't. If you do, it costs you money if yeah. that train stops. And it costs a lot of money, and then you got it. that's not money that you're able to put into the onto the screen to make your show look better. So it's uh, interesting you're talking about like like this juggling world that we might sometimes run into, or quite often do run into yeah. during filmmaking. I find it... For me, I look at it like, oh, it's uh, it's the stress that gets put onto the crew in an AD sense. Mm-hmm. For me, it's something I quite enjoy dealing with because it's like, okay, we made a plan, plan failed, rearranged the plan. Yeah. How can we make it still work? Yeah. What is your process or uh, what do you enjoy in that process? Do you hate it or you're like, I really hate it when the train's leaving the station, everyone messed up? <laughs> uh, oh, my God. thirty. You're asking me this after being in this business for 33 years. <laughs> So it's a real love-hate, and a, a, another cliche thing that I say is mm. the best laid plans are the ones that change. If you cannot deal with change, you cannot manage change or adapt to change, mm-hmm. this industry is not for you. Definitely not. not at all. <laughs> but you have to be able to really think on your feet and think on the fly. You really do, because if you don't, then that, again, the train stops, mm-hmm. and it's a trickle-down effect that affects the rest of your crew, yep. that affects everything. Um, there are times when I love it yeah. and thrive off it. Um, and then there are times when I absolutely hate it when it's such a difficult particular thing. Like if it's an actor availability or if it's a, an insurance claim. I had a project several years ago where I had the studio burned down. Mm-hmm. And the studio burned down and I did not stop shooting. I kept going, and as much as it pained me, it was my goal at that time that I'm going to keep this movie going. And should we have shut down? Probably. Today's world, we probably would have. But 
we were able to get different lenses and different cameras. We were doing underwater, and we just kept the machine going, and and you just keep going and going and going. I love that I'm able to say that I kept that movie going. Yeah. Like, it, I take pride in that. Was it the right choice? I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's thriving off change is, it, it's when you start shooting a show, at least for me, my adrenaline kicks in. Definitely. And I am going, 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 going. Where I'll, I will personally work 16, 18 hours a day just to keep that show on schedule, on budget, looking as good as we can mm -hmm. um, to my own detriment. Definitely. And it's definitely something that we're going to touch on in a second. But one point with that, how, what adds to those extra hours? So is it typically known that a producer, a line producer would be doing these many hours or? No. So for you, no. what, what adds to that? Or my is own, it attention to detail? <laughs> it, well, yeah, I'm a little OCD, uh, or a lot OCD. Um, I have my own professional work ethic that is, this is where I want to be. Yep. This is where I, I am, and I'm always doing this. Yeah. I'm always looking up. It's psychologically brutal, but that is who I am and who I always have been and always will continue to be. You know, no amount of therapy is going to get me to change. Um <laughs> So you don't have to put in the extra hours. There are people that don't. There mm -hmm. are PMs and production managers that are gone by 6 o'clock. Yeah. And they just leave it to everybody else, and they think that's the job. Well, that's not me. That's not the job. I am part of – nobody works for me. I work with everybody. Yeah. And if my production coordinators are there, my accountant's still there, my ADs are still there, I'm there to back them up and help them out and figure and, and work together because without everybody else, we're nothing. Definitely. Right? So. Well, that's one of those things I, I would definitely like to give a testament to you because I'm someone who's worked with you for a yeah. couple of years now. And for me, it's something that's incredibly respectable. And it, in my own heart, it makes it pushes me a lot harder when I see my bosses not like slacking yeah. and it's like, they're, if they're willing to put in the work, why aren't I willing to right. put in the work? So right. it's you. something that I really attest to you. And like, again, one of my favorite people to work thank with. Thank you right so much. Here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so starting out in the film industry, how did you get to where you are? What, what's the route to take to become a producer? Well, you can do it. There's a lot of routes yeah. and I probably, I, I have a, a theory. So when I'll, I'll just take you back to my entire life career. Yeah. So I started as an actor. I started as a performer. I have a, a theater background and I started through high school, came to Vancouver, tried to get acting jobs in the late eighties. It was not how talented you were because there was only like this many shows, but it's not how talented you were. It's what you looked like. Okay. And so all the feedback I get from auditions was you're very talented, but you don't, uh, you know, at the time I had red hair, white skin, yeah. blue eyes. I did not look like don't Tom Cruise. I, <laughs> no. And we're still, it was an American, what was here at the time, it was an American look. So I ended up going to the Vancouver Film School. I was one of the early classes when they started. And I got an overview of what filmmaking was. And at the time their program was only like eight months. So yeah. it was a very quick intensive Got out, started working uh, a couple of freebie jobs for some art directors and stuff. And then I was a location PA and I was a location PA for a year. Then I started uh, as a trainee AD and then I'd be a trainee AD office PA because I wanted to see where all how the office ran in relationship to how the set ran. Then I was a third and then I was a second. 
um, AD, which was like the best because I got into feature films at that point and got that well-rounded side of it because I had television already. I wanted to see feature films. So I did a little movie called Happy Gilmore. And <laughs> I saw that on your IMDb. I fangirled so hard yeah. when I saw it. <laughs> I thought I told you that yeah. before. But yeah, I was the second AD on Happy yeah. Gilmore. And and then that was, I had like a couple more projects after that. And then I, I jumped to being a production manager. And then... At the time, most of the product, the line producers that were com- were being brought to Vancouver, they weren't Canadian. They weren't based here. So I always got to work with the U.S. line producers. So I'd, A, I'd learn what they were bringing here from the U.S., but they had never worked in Canada, so they had no real clue mm. of how it worked here, where I did. So I ended up doing the lion's share of their work just to keep the show going. So that I'm learning all that side of it. I had connections with the studios, with the finance department, with you know publicity and all the different creative departments on the U.S. side as well as the Canadian side. I stayed a production manager for 20-plus years, mostly because, you know, I had a family and I wanted to not necessarily give up my full weekends. I give up some of them, but then my full weekends. And then you just, because of your my experience in both logistics and finances, and then the next leap was to, as a producer for me. Um, should I have done it 10 years ago? Probably, but I didn't. So I only did it like three years ago and and really kind of jumped in with both feet. And this is where I am now. Is it something that you look back on and you regret not coming back 10 years ago and taking that leap? Or is it uh, for you and your own personal life? Is it something like a, like the, the blocks lined up the way that they should have? Regret's probably not the right word because I don't regret a lot of things. Um Regret for me is too negative, and psychologically, it just drags you down. Sure. Um, but I wish I had done it earlier um, for a number of reasons. Uh, but my family and what little time I was having at home yeah. in those off times was more precious to me na- than than the way it is now. Like my kids are now grown and, and whatever. Uh, I mean, I can travel now as a producer, which, you know, is, as and I'm a dual Canadian American. So I have that opportunity to travel to the U S. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't regret no. that. There's other things I do regret, <laughs> but not that. Awesome. So let's take it back a little bit. When you first pick up a show as a line producer or a producer, yep. How do you choose the shows that you would want to take on? Because I know what we've touched on a lot in in the previous podcasts are eventually when you have enough experience or you have enough shows behind you, you have a little bit more flexibility. Is that something that you see that you have flexibility on? I guess not right now because there are no shows. There's there's nothing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you got a job, you take it. Yeah. Yeah. The money is coming in. Okay. Someone wants to give me a paycheck. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So many of the shows that were done here for many, many, many years were just cop dramas. You go way back to 21 Jump Street, Wise Guy. Um, you, you look at, and then the, you got into the sci-fi kind of cop dramas in, in like Millennium and X-Files and that. And I did those shows and it's like, okay, eh, I've been there, done that. I want something different and something that's a little bit more challenging. Um, you know, when I went on to the show that I met you on, that was interesting to me because I hadn't done that kind of a drama where it was really talking heads. I mean, I'd done the shows with the special effects and the visual effects and the fly rigs and all these kinds of stuff. It's like, okay, that's fantastic and that's fun, but then you you kind of want to you want to grow a little bit. So so then I did that and then my last project it was with a 
uh, a celebrity. I mean, it was with Marsha Gay Harden and Skylar Aston from Pitch Perfect, but it was a comedy drama. It was a dramedy, and I hadn't done that, and so that was of interest to me. You, you don't. Yes and no. You need the experience because, like, there are people that were hired on that are hired on you know big. $200 million feature films that have like, were a PA yesterday. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. And, I know them and, well. <laughs> you, you, we all know them well, Carl. And so it's, it's, uh, for me, experience is anything. Yeah. It is everything. And I wouldn't change the way I went about my career any at all. Um, but yeah, that, you know, if I were presented two different projects yeah. and one was a drama and one was a sci-fi action film, it's all going to be what interests me, what what's connected to it. That's, you know, whether it's the producers, whether it's the talent, whether it's do I actually like the script? Yeah. You know, like I've, I've been talking to a, a, an independent that might come up here that um, is really a slasher film. Like it's, it's like stunts and effects and fighting and gore and blood and guns and stuff. I actually like the script. Yeah. It's not something I'd even go and watch like I'm not that's not the kind of film that I enjoy but I I like the script I like that it's an independent film company yeah. you know you just you just kind of depend on what's in front of you definitely no it's, it's something that it, even in my own career that I look forward to doing and I think you put it best yourself is the experience in the different realms of yeah. television or feature or shorts yeah. where you get to experience something different and that's what I really admire about film Mm -hmm. Uh, that every day is a different day and you never know really what to expect. How do you, do you choose your, uh, your head of departments or, uh, how, how is the hiring process going and who do you hire in first? So it all depends. Well, it, it doesn't depend. It, uh, again, features are, are television. If you're, you bring in the best available people with the best resumes that are, that support the project that you're doing. And it then it becomes a collaborative effort. In television, you you all the heads of departments, major, mostly the DP, the um, production, the director of photography, the production designer, the costume designer, um, the editors will meet with the showrunners and the head of creative, and they will then say who they like and who they don't like, and then you know I'm part of those interviews. Um, then once it goes from there, like the production designer will bring in their first and second choices for props, set deck, and uh, construction and greens. So then they bring those people in. For me, my first hire as a producer is my production manager and my production office and my accountant. Those are the main three people that I get locked in right away because they're the ones that are going to start right away and get them in. And then it's really kind of, you know, pulling back the onion. It's like, okay, who are the best people to fit? Much of my career as an AD, I was very, I became sought after by a production manager. So when the US ADs would come up here, I was being on hold with these production managers for as a second to go work on these feature films. So then I was just kind of given to the set, the first, but I had to sit around and wait for ex production manager to get a job. And I, it's not always a fit. It's not like I wasn't always the fit with the first and and it was really difficult. So I've never asked people to, you know, wait around for me because I want to work with you. If yeah. you're available, great. Um, I, you know, I have my favorites, of course, and I have people that I know can do the job and do it well and deliver the creative and do it on a on a budget and a timeline. Um, 
those are the people that I usually bring in for people to meet. Awesome. I am very, very curious about something. Something Uh-oh. that's always uh, in my head. I don't know how you would deal with it, but when you've got a really difficult actor or a <laughs> difficult director and oh, the rest of the crew is like, man, this, I don't know what this is, but we, we're not the people who are able to talk to it because it usually goes up to the producer or yeah. line producer and it's like, this this is an issue that's happening. How do you usually deal with it? And I know situational, it's very different, but... What happens in those situations? Is it, we'll write you out of the show I've heard before? Is it, what happens? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, this is, this one, that's a, okay. So, it, 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 it you're right. It is situational. Um, I recently have had a challenge with a very difficult actor. Yeah. Um, and he and I did not, uh, another love-hate kind of thing. Like, I respected him as a performer, but his onset be- theatrics and and stuff became become distracting. It yeah. becomes a huge issue. So yes, you have to do your best to go in the door and have a rational conversation with either the director or the actors. You mm-hmm. take them away from everybody else. You try not to make it a spectacle in front of the entire crew. Sometimes you're going to get through and sometimes you're not. And what I have found over the years is if it's somebody who's just being a prick or just difficult for the sake of being difficult, nine times out of ten, it's just they want to be heard. They want to be heard. They want to have what they're saying be be heard and, and be taken into consideration. It's the people that push back on it and go, no, I don't care what you say. This is the way it's going to be. And COVID really drove a lot of those things home, especially like with actors and having to wear masks when they weren't on camera. I mean, you know as well as I do how difficult that was for a lot of them. Um, If you don't get that far or get anywhere with resolving the issue at that time, sadly, then involve your HR people at the difference. If you have HR people with studios and networks, you bring them in and help them mitigate to the best of your abilities, but you still have to walk the line. You still have to be, you still have to, you have to be on the fence. You have to side with the studio and the network, but then you also have to side with the performer because you still have to have a relationship with them. I don't have to like anybody. I don't have to like them personally and go for beers, you know, every Friday night, but I have to have a working relationship that it's respectful on both sides. And sometimes that's difficult because egos get in the way. Definitely. Yeah, especially it's interestingly enough that no matter the size project, you'll always have someone yeah. who has an ego on yeah. them. Even when we get to the multi-million dollar projects, there's mm-hmm. still issues that you'll have to deal with and it's just stuff that doesn't go away. So it's the people management skills on that end. Um, how do you, does who does the line producer or producer protect? Is it is the layout the they protect the crew underneath them or the person bringing in the budget or where does the line flow or how do you see yourself as a protector as a line? I, I, I the word protector yeah. is kind of that's I don't know if that's the word you want no. to use. Um, I don't know what you mean by that because like if you have a difficult actor who's you know difficult with a costume designer or being uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, too forthright, if yep. you will, or or you know, 
taking it across the line, then I'm going to back the the costume designer if that performer is doing something that he or she should not be doing. I'm going to back the costume designer. I'll protect the back the costume designer. But if it's, you know, the costume designer, you know, the actor keeps saying, well, I want this fit a certain way or I don't want to wear green or whatever, and the costume designer keeps bringing that person in, then I'm going to protect the actor. So it all it's all kind of situational as to what that is. I mean, my job is to protect everybody. Yeah. My job is to make sure that everybody has the tools that they need and the ability to bring their creative and then stick to the budget to help me. Because if they don't help me, then I'm out of a job. Yeah. Right? Like it's, and I don't know if I already said it, but this is a big team. Like we are all here to work together to, for the same end result, whether you're an actor, a director, a producer, a director of photography, a grip, we're all here to do what needs to be done to create the project. So in terms of protecting, yeah, I have to protect the budget, but I also have to protect the creative because I, if I, if I spend this much money in the show's garbage, it's going to get canceled. And that's not in the best interest of me and my career, but it's yeah. also not in the best interest of the studio, the network for my next job. Yeah. They just, well, they you did the budget, but then the network said, well, yeah, but it looked like crap because he made them change all these things you know, and he was under budget by a million dollars at the end of it, it's like, okay, well, then why would we have him back? So it, it's kind of... So they don't even look at if you saved on the budget. They look on the project as a whole at the end of the day. If you're given, let's say, after tax credits, $4 million an episode, they want you, and it's 20 episodes, they want you to spend $80 million. If I come in $8 million under, that's as bad as billing being $8 million over. Being grossly under budget is almost as bad as being grossly over budget. Because that could have been the one thing that enhanced the film that you pulled back on. Correct. So the finance department at the studios and networks would love me because they didn't have to spend $8 million. But the creative side of it, the showrunners, the 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 creator of the project, the writers are going to look at me and go, really? Really? You saved $8 million? Like what? Like we could have had a techno crane or we could have had, you know, this or this or this, or we could have put the drone in that episode or we didn't have to change whatever. We could have had the 50 horses that I made you change to one cat, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you know, and that that's almost as bad as being over budget. True. And when, when do you just, dis- I guess uh, th- this is a bad example of it, but when do you decide when you're, needing to spend extra on your budget or needing to pull back on your budget. So I know, again, it it will differ depending if we're talking about television or a feature film, but when do you end up, do you do monthly reviews where you see where the budget's at or when you're about to hit the end? You do weekly cost reports. You do weekly cost reports on all the various budgets that you have. So like in television, you'd have an AMWR budget and then however many episodes, because with your pattern budget, so if my pattern budget is 3.8, that episode, once we budget it and go through all the departments and plan it all, might only be 3.2. So it's 600000 under. Mm-hmm. So then we have this, it's called, it, it's called, it's different at different studios, but it's like a cost summary where it shows all the different budgets and goes the ups and downs and the positives and negatives. And then at the bottom end of the line, you have how much money you're over under for the projection for all the shows. There are some shows like miniseries and stuff that will have 
it's one big old budget, but there's individual episodes all into it. So like I do a budget for $25 million. So as long as we're going along and we're kind of at the end of it, at the aggregate, at the end of it, we're within the target. That's, that's how you do it. Got you. Okay. So it is always a constant thing that's updating and it's not just oh, yeah. randomly after you're like, wait a second, here's nope, nope. $8 million that's missing that we now need to spend. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why, you know, people laugh and say, why do I have to do purchase orders? You know, why do I have to do this? Well, billing is so far late and we are so on the minute and everything is so quick and so fast. If, you know, you put in a PO for $15,000 for a tent, you know, I want to know about that now. So that money's committed now, not a month from now or two months from now when the bill actually comes in, because I look at those cost reports weekly. Interesting. Awesome. And then this one will take us to a break. And I'm very curious about this. Again, uh, it was mentioned on our production talk with a non-union producer. Where does the rap party money come from? Is it something that you factor into your budgets? Is it depends on the project again? <laughs> so feature films, they will allow you to budget X number of dollars for a rap party. Okay, at least on the studio sides. In television. It's the same with crew gifts. That's really kind of gone by the wayside because the studios and networks are not run by filmmakers anymore. They're run by tech companies, accountants, Wall Street executives. So like on the show we did on, we weren't allowed to budget money for a rap party, like at all. So as the show you're getting towards the end and it's like, okay, you see your X number of dollars under budget, you then go to the finance department and your production executive to see if they will allow you to use some of it. Um, and then nowadays they only allow you to pay for the venue, for food, any sort of alcohol has to be paid by others. And on the show that we worked on, the producers and the cast paid for that part of it. Um, it all depends on the show. Like, and it also depends on the studio. Like when you get like a show like Supernatural wrapping after 15 seasons, they spent a crap load of money. And from what I understand, that was all studio. So if they spent, that's their decision on yep. where it goes. But 99% of the time, you're not allowed to budget for it anymore. Oh, it well, it's a good thing to know. And I'm sure like people will be very thankful looking at this, like uh, getting to the end of their shows potentially and being like, yeah. where, where the hell am I going to find this? <laughs> yeah. If you've got, if you're under budget and the people that are financing your show allow you to spend it, that's where I, I go to it. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, we're going to cut to a quick break. Uh, We'll be back in five and we'll talk a little bit more about we're getting into the mental health side of things. And then we're going to ask you some questions that got sent in from other producers, actually. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Wayne. Okay. Awesome. And we're back. So before the break, we've heard a little bit about uh, Wayne's story and what it means to be a producer and what is a producer, more importantly, and how you operate as a producer. So going back, I just want to hit you with a hard-hitting question. One thing that I I personally enjoy because it's one thing that I've had to deal with in my life as uh, going down my AD route, is there a time that you almost quit film? So it's just like your gut-wrenching day, it's your make-it-or-break-it day. And can you talk a little bit about that? So my answer is going to be twofold. There's there's two things. There's like a particular project where I say, this is too much, I'm going to quit. I'm not a quitter, but it has to really put me so far over the edge. Definitely. And then there is quitting the industry. So... Over my 30-plus year career, there's been four substantial downturns, and the most recent is, well, now, um, with 
the, where we are now. And I've, I've tried to get out of the industry three times and where I've literally just gone, you know what, this is too much. I can't do these hours anymore. I'm suffering personally, professionally, mentally, family, and I've tried to get out. And every single time I get dragged back in and 99% of the time, it's because of the people that I have grown up with in this industry and love being around. I mean, yeah, there's the benefits of not knowing, you know, it takes 37 minutes to drive to work every day and that my coffee breaks from 9.15 to 9.30 and, you know, lunch is from 12, you know, the 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 structured and then by 2.30 or, or 4.30 or whatever, you're done and you're 38 minutes to drive home. I love that craziness of it. Um, in terms of a production, there have been a few where it's just so out of control and there's nothing I can do to bring it back in control that, or anybody will allow me to do to bring it back into control that I've just said enough is enough. And, uh, I've either chosen to walk away or I have, uh, you know, you suffer through it. I did a television series many years ago that caused, um, some heart issues, um, that, I thought was more of a panic attack, but it turns out it wasn't, but it was, you know, I was working 20 hours a day. I was getting probably two hours sleep. By the time I drove home and drove back again, I was bending over backwards for this particular production and it was never enough to the point where I was the production manager at the time. And the line producer went up one side of me and down the other in front of the entire crew. And it was like, at that point, there is no respect. Um, there's nothing I can do to solve or fix this problem. And I just, went to my office and packed up and left. Yeah. Um, so it, everything in this business and every, because every show is either, you know, six weeks long, six months long, two years long, whatever it's yeah. situational. Um, we throw people together that may or may not be the most compatible. Um, you hope that they are, you hope that, you know, you crew them to the best of your abilities based on the other personalities you have, yeah. but it's not always a perfect fit. Um, and then, you work for people that are not always as good in their jobs as they should be. Mm -hmm. And I'm a detail-oriented person. I am also a control freak, but I'm a control freak that will listen to reason and listen to other people's ideas. And if their ideas are the best, great. If my idea, based on my experiences, but there are some that you just don't, just don't connect with. And yeah, it's when you leave a project, it's one of the hardest things because you're leaving the people that you brought in yeah. and you're basically, basically abandoning them. And psychologically that's a hit. How do you deal with that? When, when you've been in that situation, is there something that do you have a routine that when looking back on it, you're like, okay, well telling yourself, like I did it for, for me, it was something that I needed to do to, to save and secure myself or, uh, how do you walk yourself through those mental struggles for when, when that happens and you have to walk away from your baby? You, you, you do the woulda, shoulda, couldas and you process, I process what became that tipping point and try to never let it happen again. So I try to learn from mistakes. I try to learn from experience so it never happens again. You do beat yourself up. I do personally. Um, that I didn't work hard enough or didn't do enough to fix the problem or avoid that situation. 
if you get to the if you realize what brought you there and can define what brought you there at some point you have to accept it you accept it either for you or you accept the failure not that i like using that term but um you just accept it and you have to move on. You pick yourself off, dust yourself off, and start it all over again. Definitely. Right? As like, the, you as know the what? Song says. <laughs> that was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> exactly. But you learn from those situations. Yep. You learn. And, and if I make a mistake, I'm the first to put my hand up and say, I effed up. Yep. I screwed up. I, I, I will own my mistake or I will own a situation um, if there's a problem. Even if it's successful, I'll, I'll, you know, I I don't go around saying, well, that was my idea. Like, no, 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 no. Uh, Like, I'll I'll give you credit for an idea that you had, you know, if if that's right. But it's so hard in this business because especially as a producer, as a production manager, you're a one person department. Mm -hmm. It's not like you've got, you know, the grip, the key grip, the the dolly grips, your best boy, blah, 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 blah. You got that team location, same thing. You've got your team of people that surround you. It, It can be hard. No, definitely. That's uh, it is one of the things we talk a lot on, and we've we've spoken on that. That in certain roles, you have your whole team that you can rely on. Like a first AD has their second AD when they're going through hard times. Like, well, we're in this shit situation, but at least we're in it together. Yeah. So in the production team, as a line producer, as a producer, you would it be known that you wouldn't really go to your other producers for it? Are you guys more? individual bands or it it depends on what it is you know like the actor situation that i had recently i went to all the other producers and and we all tried to attack it and and manage it together um so it didn't all fall on one person um and they were all incredibly supportive which was great um but then it just it just depends on what it is like you know it it depends on what it is because you you i I don't take things personally, but I do, yeah. if that makes sense, um, because of my work ethic and my the way I was raised yeah. to be successful. No, it's interesting. Like the way I picture that when when you say that, I I look at the film industry like uh, the culinary industry, where you're in the the back of a kitchen, and what I was always told is you're. You're in this kitchen and your head chef is just abusing you. And they're like, you're not doing it fast enough. You're not doing it right. But at the end of the day, once everything's done and dusted, the head chef will come up to you and be like, do you want to have a beer together? Mm-hmm. Or let, let's let's talk about it. Because at the end of the day, there is a human being under uh, under everything that happened. And I especially find with the film industry that we have to treat it as like that we have essentially a family or a group of great friends that are pulled together to make this great, like to raise a child or to Mm -hmm. make something monumental. But at the end of the day, it's also still a business that we have to also take into consideration when we're working with these friends. Is there, have you ever been in a situation that you've been in a friendship, but it's being crushed by the film industry because of something that happened in film? That's, I don't know that I have. Maybe once, maybe uh, nothing jumps to mind that. So would you say it's like, it's one of those things that 
people who who know you are in un, very much understanding that it is a business as well as we can have. Oh a no, no, oh no, no. Oh okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess yes and no. Um, no, for the most part, they know what that it is a job. It is a business. I am a manager. Yeah. And our friendship has grown most often out of the project. Um, I have lost people that are friends, not because of the industry, but because of situations, you know, like a friend on friend relationship or, or, you know, if it's a, another sort of, you know, romantic relationship, because it just didn't work. Yeah. Right. But it's not because film working in film made it happen like yeah. it you know that sort of got thing. you got does that you. make sense yeah yeah no, um i do just want to jump back yep. to your culinary suggestion or your culinary example there is no reason and no way and no right anymore or acceptance for that manager that head chef to treat anybody no the way that they did yeah. the way that they do and the way that they did much of this industry through the 80s sorry through the 90s and the early 2000s how i was raised was all about yelling and screaming mm. and belittling and humiliating. And, you know, there are people, when I was a production assistant, that treated me like that, that I will never hire to this day. Like, there's just no way. And and the world has fortunately evolved, and it's getting better and better all the time in our industry to not accept that. And so where I will have my moments, I'm the first to say, I will just flip off and have a moment. But... I will own it in front of that same group of people yeah. that I may have flipped out on. Yeah. Like if I'm flipping out on you in front of 30 people, I'm not going to then take you aside and say, oh, Carl, I'm really sorry. I'll take you for a beer. No, I'm going to do it in front of those 30 people awesome. because I made a mistake. Yeah. I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because I, I was going to ask you the question on how do you see the end? How have you seen the industry evolve, especially with that? Because one, again, one thing that we've brought up a lot is what I value about the industry, it's 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 not perfect yet, by all means. It's, it's nowhere close it's, it's to It's never perfect. going to be. <laughs> no, exactly. Like, it's never going to be. But we're, it looks like we're taking the right steps, and people yeah. are taking more ownership. We're being more into a, the equality side of yeah. things and really trying to lift people up rather than crush them down. Yeah. Um, it, and so it, it's something that you've noticed uh, back a couple of 30 years ago it was very much the you need to put in the hours you need to put in the hard work if you're not doing that you're not good enough and yeah pretty much I had a, my first show as a PA in 1990 the production manager if the production and I was a location PA there was four of us there was the ALM and four now there's like 40 but whatever <laughs> yeah. and if the PM showed up on set if we were sitting down we were not asked back the next day wow period we were not coming back the next I've heard day. heard stories about yeah. this. <laughs> and that's, and that, and he would never scream or yell at us, but I'd seen him scream and yell at other departments. And that was the way that the industry evolved through that time in how it, everybody felt it needed to be managed. These are the days where people are drinking at work. These are the days as a tad, I'd go to get out times and they're doing blow on the job boxes in the, in the lighting truck. Fortunately, all that, you know, or, and then every Friday, these garbage cans of beer would show up for the entire crew and you could drink as many as you want, drive home drunk. Nobody cared. There was no responsibility. But fortunately, all that stuff has changed or is changing yeah. where it is becoming more inclusive and, and, and more responsible, Yeah, I guess is the right word. And, 
yeah, I've had to change. I've had to relearn some stuff. You know, I was in a course on the weekend about inclusion and some things that I had learned in this industry and how I grew up about how things are to run is not acceptable anymore. And now I have to switch, take that brain and switch it to go, okay, this is the way things are now. This is what I have to do to be successful and treat people the way that people are expecting to be treated now. And I'm not saying I was, I mean, I can be a yeller and a screamer. (laughs) Absolutely. I have a temper. I'm the first to admit it. I had red hair for crying out loud, (laughs) right? Like, um, but it was, it's just how you carry yourself and how you manage and, and yeah, things are just are changing like you said yeah yeah most definitely and uh a testimony again to to you about what you were saying earlier the makings of a great producer and line producer is that adaptability and that also means adaptability into this new era because otherwise eventually we just become in any age group any level eventually you'll become redundant if you're not able to adapt with the the new times whether you like it or not well you become unhirable too you know, that's the thing. If if you get, you know, you're working with a particular studio and you get too many HR claims against you, the production executive is going to check with HR and they're going to say, no, that we can't hire this person. It's too, it, it makes it, it's too liable for our company. It, it's not a good working environment that this person is creating. Um, so y- you have to, you have to adapt or you become, like you said, redundant, but then you become unhirable and then what do you do? Yeah. You go to a new industry after this. <laughs> yeah. Um, curious. Uh, what is a blacklist a thing? Cause I remember when I was, I was an actor, it was always a thing of don't do, don't do or say the wrong thing because you'll be put onto Disney's blacklist or you'll be put onto a blacklist. Right. Is that a thing or is it more a personal list that you have where you're like, I just don't like working. Well, with for so many for so many years, I was told the same thing, that there, the studios do not have a, a blacklist, that um, they that, that doesn't exist. They can't do it, especially in the union environment. They don't. But they do. They all do. Um, they don't call it a blacklist. They call it a no-hire list. That makes sense. Um, it's very private. Um, I, as a producer, when I'm putting certain creative heads, uh, sorry, creative department heads, in, uh, like the person that the studios they want to hire, yeah. the creators want to hire, I have to submit them to the studio and the studio has to approve. If that person's on that no hire list, they'll come back and they'll tell me, they're not going to tell me he's on a no hire list. They're going to say, you need to find somebody else. Gotcha. And then more often than not, I find out through the through the grapevine, oh yeah, they're on a <laughs> no hire list. Um, I think I'm actually on a no hire list with one of the studios for no fault of my own. Um but that was what they chose to do, and I've not worked for that company ever since. In terms of my own blacklist, I do have a list. I don't call it a blacklist. I call it a list of people that I don't wish to work with again. Yeah. And for whatever reason, and it's never, it's not, it's not like, you know, well, this person looked at me the wrong way. It's, again, situational. You know, this person can't manage a budget. They're all over all the time. Not going to work. This person, you know, had a fight with a lead actor and it really became, you know, this is not a situation I want to put myself in and trying to manage going forward. So I have my own little internal list, kind of like that one 
person when I was a PA who I've never worked with since. Um, it, it, we all do it because we, you know, sorry, Carl, you're on mine. I'm no, sorry, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, ah, yeah. oh, man. <laughs> you answer me this, yeah, yeah. ask me this leading question. Yeah. Yes, no, Carl, you're yeah, not. Now a, you're you're not. A, yeah. Um, you <laughs> are now. Um, no, you're not. No. Um, but yeah, and I don't know many people in in as producers or PMs that don't have that list. Yeah, because I think it's also one of those things. Even work work ethic aside, it's one you want a healthy work environment mm-hmm. and to to achieve these uh, like a health well a healthy environment for yeah. the rest of your crew to yeah. let them produce their best work. We spend too many hours together. Definitely. We spend too many hours. I mean, we're not eight-hour days with, you know, our coffee breaks and our lunches, we are, in many cases, 12 to 14 to 16 to 18-hour days. And, you know, I used this phrase many years ago, we are a film family because most often than not, we see more of each other at work than we see of our own families. And you're not always going to get along. You're not. But if there are people that don't get along because of who they are or what they bring to the table, I have to acknowledge that and go, and that's why I don't have, you know, yes, I have my favorites of people I'd like to hire, but if they're not available, then I try and the next best person that's going to fit in that environment mm-hmm. with the creatives of the people that are doing the show. Do, when when you're coming on uh, to a show, do you have to set your boundaries? Do you, Are you allowed to have your own boundaries with the show of things that if you encounter counter the certain situation you will just walk off of it or what kind of boundaries well i'm curious because for for me personally like when i go into a, a non-union lower budget show i'll sure. i'll end up saying like okay so uh if you want to push a volunteer crew for example above 12 hours then that's just something i personally don't do because you're asking them to volunteer 100%. Just, just so your personal uh i I don't know what a better word than boundaries would be to use, but uh, just like if you encounter a situation and you're like, this is, just so you know, this is the type of person I am. And if I encounter this, I'll try to deal with it the best of my abilities, but this is my make it or break it line. Yeah, I think anybody who's responsible as a man in management has to have those things. I mean, there's obviously, you know, if there's, an assault or harassment or bullying or whatever, and the people that you're working for, the studio that you're working for, don't deal with it. Like they just the old sweep under the rug. Exactly. And and for many years that happened with actors. Oh, they can we'll just let it happen because they're the talent and they and I think that's why we have as many as we have that are difficult. Then I would walk away. Yeah. Um because if you don't if the people that you're working for, if you if I don't respect the people that I'm working for then what's the point? Yeah. At the end of the day, I have to walk, and I say this all the time, if I can't walk away from the at the end of a show with my integrity and my reputation, mm-hmm. there's no reason for me to be there. Yeah. There's just not, because what am I gaining from this however long I've been on this show? Like, I'm not gaining anything. Yeah. No, exactly. Especially because you're other than a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like other than a paycheck. Like yeah. I'm 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 not. Like I'm I'm not gonna allow a show to wreck my reputation because they won't support me in a situation that is not of my doing or does that make sense? No, you know definitely. I, mean? I I've even I actually had this conversation with my partner the other day that if if a show is willing to do that to you, 
mm-hmm. and you choose to walk away and they hate you for it. It's ultimately, I think of it as it's not a show that you want to be working for again anyway. And why no. would you want to put yourself back into that no. situation? No, it's like using your volunteer experience. I mean, okay, fine. The The cameras broke for two hours and, you know, an extenuating circumstance. But because the director has 30 more shots and want, and is doing 10 takes of everything, we got to go an extra two hours. No. no. No, that that's then that's them disrespecting the crew. Yeah, and you know, you, growing up, I, I had certain departments tell me, you know, without us, you can't do the show. Mm-hmm. So they just get these inflated egos and whatever. When you break it all down, you need everybody. Yeah, you need every person in every department. Whether you need as many people in each department is you know, situational, but you need location department. You need assistant directors. You need script supervisors. You need costumes, hair, makeup. You need all these different departments, camera, grip, lighting, because that's what brings it all together. Definitely. Right? Yeah. You can write. It's like writers have been saying, we can write anything we want to write, but until we have actors at a production crew, we've got nothing. Yeah. You just got words on a page. Yeah. Could you actually speak on that? Uh, so... Did you ever start life out in the non-union world before? Because uh, I remember you spoke of you started out as a PA yeah. when you worked your way up. Was yeah. that in a, were unions a thing back then? They were okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, the DGC was still there. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so did you start straight in the union world? I went straight into the union world. Okay, uh, I was very lucky. What are your thoughts on non-union or like what people can gain or maybe the disadvantages that you've seen being on the union side? Yeah, because the union, the getting into unions now is so, it's not restrictive. It's just, it's so challenging. You have to have so many days and, and you, you know, depending on the department, you have to do tests and you do courses and all that kind of stuff. And I don't disagree with any of that, but when they expect you to have X number of days to even apply to a union, mm. where are you going to get that experience yeah. from? Whether it's on commercials, non-union, great. Go and work on a commercial and learn this stuff. You work on non-union projects just to get the experience. Where, And I have no problem with non-union. I don't, I, yes, I'm a union person because I. that's the environment I grew up in. But there are many people in this city that have made a very good career of sticking non-union and and just working in that environment and yes you're gonna or no you're not gonna have as many many experienced people um because it's a training ground yeah um and you're gonna get paid you know in a flat and you're not in an hourly and if you go over to, chances are you're not gonna do overtime because it costs more money and um but it is a level of experience where i have a problem where you would have needed to have the extra protection in the the house, or that the lighting department didn't know they had to put tennis balls on on the on the the feet of the stands, and you do all the damage. Then that's now taking it's putting a black mark, for lack of a better description, Definitely. on our industry. Much like uh, I don't know if you heard about it, but the uh, the guys in North Vancouver that it was either shooting a TikTok video or something, and they had guys dressed as cops with fake guns. They were SWAT team, and they were in this parkade, and the city of North Vancouver, as well as the RCMP, had to come down and shut them down because people were saying, there's people running around here with guns, with guns and yeah. stuff. And it's like, we know from the union world, you can't do that. Definitely. And that if you do, you need to have a member of the police department there. Mm-hmm. Well, it was just a TikTok thing, but that then doesn't put our industry, 
with the public and with the city and municipalities that we work in, in a good light. And that's where I have the problem mm-hmm. with it. Sadly, you see more loss and damage in the non-union world because you don't have the experience in dealing with the equipment and and that sort of thing. Like well, That's I, one of those things because it's like the general public, they just see film as a whole. There is no union or non-union. If they, they yeah. hear, oh, someone, even if it's a student film, if yeah. student film's filming around the corner, they'll just say, oh, there's a film, like a little show shooting around the corner. It's There's no blanket outlier no. for them, which is, I, I definitely agree with your uh, statement that it is something that we could, re- without that experience behind it, they wouldn't also know that they needed to have an armor on set or exactly. they needed to have the police on set or they needed to shut down a certain area of the block to be able to do that. Exactly. Um, no, but thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I do agree. It, it is a training ground as well. And, and 100%. Like, like, it's, it's very valuable to, to have for people, especially if they can't jump straight into the union yeah. world and get that experience. One of my first projects... As a non-union, it was a as a producer, a full producer, not a co-producer on another show, was a non for a non-union company in town, and it was a non-union project. And I really had to. I mean, DGC and UBCP, you know, the actors and the production people were union, but everybody else was non. And I really had to change the way I looked at it and my expectations, and but then also avail myself to be more of a teacher and it's like okay i understand how you want to approach it this way but this is my experience in doing it this other way for the same amount of money at the same time so those people could learn from that as well and it it worked out you know i had a good working relationship with my crew and and everything but um it was definitely a a mind shift yeah i know to get there definitely it's it's one of those things when when i'm on these projects as well I try striving, again, for those of you who know me, I'm not able to get into the union because I don't have my PR, but uh, one of the things I strive for is trying to bring that union knowledge to a non-union setting, even though I haven't been able to be onto the union because it's, it is a machine. A union world is, it's a machine Mm -hmm. and it works a certain way because it's been trialed and tested so many times that when you face a problem, this is the best way to deal with it because we've encountered it many, many times. Mm -hmm. But in the non-union world, unless you're a a small time production company, you haven't encountered those, uh, those routes. And when you run into a problem, it's okay. How can I solve this the best way without any other information? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, okay, so now we have run into the area where I have gone around and I have asked people, what questions would you like to ask a union producer? And let me tell you, Wayne, I have been sent so many questions on this that oh boy. I hope you're ready for the qu- uh, quick and fast answers. So that's what you want. You want quick and fast answers. Quick and fast. And yes, no, precise. maybe. <laughs> maybe uh, next one. Yeah. Skip, pause. Uh, no way. I'm not going there. <laughs> no, uh, more. I'm just going to hit you with a lot, a lot of questions. Okay. So uh, first one, with the Canadian film industry heavily service-based and currently affected by strikes, is there a need for grassroots initiatives to reduce reliance on American film work? Yes, and it's art. It's been happening here in BC for years, and we run into this roadblock. The indigenous productions are centered in Toronto, 
And it is, and very rarely does our friend, do our production company friends in Toronto go past the Rocky Mountains. And I don't know why. And part of it is the tax incentives are not as lucrative. Like if you get, it's called Film Incentive BC. If you do a Canadian content show, you can take advantage of once you get the points and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's hard it's been hard to get those shows in Vancouver, in the province, you know, let alone in the province, than it is out of Toronto. It's so like Toronto, even with the strikes right now, they are still... It's still making stuff. They're still, you know, they're so, so busy. I mean, not busy, but yeah. they, they've still got work, more than what work than what we've got, because they have the Indigenous Canadian stuff that's that's produced there. Um, it, it's grassroots. It, I'd love it. I'd love it, but then we need to, we have to be competitive and we have to get the shows here. I mean, fortunately, there's two Canadian series shooting here right now, a third one about to start. That's, you know, the days going back to shows called Beachcombers and Danger Bay and Da Vinci's Inquest and all that sort of stuff. Like these are Canadian shows, but there was one. Yeah. As opposed to seven or eight. It's increasing, (laughs) but I think it's only because of the strikes. No, that makes sense because people are craving to create something right mm-hmm. now. And it's like, oh, well, how can we do it? So it has to be a homegrown show. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for that answer. So next one. Uh, should there be intern or PA roles in BC Union films beyond locations or production to enhance training and support for industry newcomers? So I, I've actually, the person reached out for this question. So sure. to, to put it into better phrasing. Um, so to get into the DGC, you have yep. to have your days as a PA. Yep. But to get into IATSE or mm-hmm. ICG, uh, you have to jump into the role or get permitted into it. Mm-hmm. But the question's more so... Should we look at a way to have PAs for every individual department? Right. Should we have a prop PA? Should we have a costume PA? Should exactly. we have a... Yeah, I get it. So where we run into that roadblock, and they do this, they do do it in the States. Yes. They yep. do do it in the States because PAs are not union in the States. They're not DGA. They're okay. not... They're all non-union. Where our PAs here are union, and they're job-specific. So it gets jurisdictional between our friends at IA versus the our our friends at the DGC because IA wants they if there's somebody working in a costume department yeah. they want them to be working under an IA contract paying pension health and welfare benefits mm-hmm. to IATSE or ICG or Teamsters so we if our PAs were not union we would have a better chance at that sure. but because they're union they're either location or see like Prime example is we were calling for the uh, several years an ADPA. Mm. Yeah, it's not a it, that doesn't exist, <laughs> yeah. and we all got our hand slapped for that. You can't do that. Um, so, you know, putting somebody, you know, I'd have costume designers coming up from the U.S. or I'd have uh, a, pro- a production designer come up from the U.S. and they say, "Well, can't you just hire me a PA?" And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to, yeah. but I can't." I but mean, uh, yeah, so that's yeah. the main reason. I'd love to do it. Yeah. I'd love to do it. Um, I'd love to have, like, like in the camera department, there's the trainee program. Yeah. You know, so we have a camera trainee that is learning. So, like, they're not going to get, you know, slapped into yeah. being a second right out of the gate. Um, 
but yeah, no, we, we uh, can't. I remember I, I tried to dip my toes into gripping and I was like, is there a no trainee grip? And they were like, no, you are, you are just a grip. Yep. <laughs> you have to know a lot of stuff as yeah. soon as you're out of the game. <laughs> well, and what I say with those people, like I had a, a, my, one of my, my wife's cousins came out from Winnipeg and wanted to get into film. He wanted to be a DP. And I said, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to go and learn the equipment. And I'm not saying the camera equipment, but you need to learn how to light. I helped him get a job at what was uh, PS, which then turned into SIM, which now is MBS, so at one of the rental houses. So they could go learn all the flags and the cables and the distribution boxes and the lights and the da, 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 know what they physically are and turn them on and turn them off before you step on a set. That makes sense. Right? And there's yeah. there's a couple of, there's a guy, there's a couple of guys in town that are running a grip school. Yeah. And literally they've set up like a rigging grip school um, and set up a whole situation. I so that, you know, they can go learn how to put this stuff together and how to build a fly swatter and all those sorts of yeah. things before you get on the ground. Because when you get on the ground, they expect you to know. hundred percent. hundred percent. Like I had a lighting guy come out one night that had never been on set before and they put him up in a condor and he'd literally just got his ticket and the gaffer was so frustrated because they couldn't get him to, you know, do the basics of, you know, putting scrims in or changing, you know. Yeah. Changing whatever. Very slight. Pan left. No, your other left because it's. <laughs> yeah, camera left, camera right. You know, like he, it, it was very frustrating. And, you know, the guy didn't even have rain gear for crying out loud. And he had to go up in the bucket. Uh, and the gaffer said, okay, here's 150 bucks. Go to Mark's work warehouse. Buy all this stuff that you can. You can pay me back once you get paid, but you're going up in this bucket and you're going to be cold and you're going to be wet. Okay, it would have really reevaluated why he liked film after this. Possibly, <laughs> awesome. yeah. But no, that that that's actually a a great bit of advice for any newcomer. There, because we always hear that like you could go back to film school and you only learn so much for film school. It really gets your like foot in the ground, but you don't yeah. learn that much. You you don't. You you. I mean, I I learned how to cut film on a Steenbeck. You know what a Steenbeck is, Carl? <laughs> that is cutting film film on the big platter thing. <laughs> on the big platter yeah. things, and you're splicing it and taping it together before. Like I, that's what I. If and how I many be, times have you used that lately? <laughs> zero. How many times did I use it out of film school? Zero. Oh, no. <laughs> but what I learned from it was editing. Nice. And how you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, but yeah, they don't teach you how to use an S360 at film no. school. Like they don't. It's like, okay, well, here's how you plug it in and here's how you change the color temperatures. Yep. But they don't, you know, unless you're into a lighting specific yeah. school, like like you're set up here. Yeah. You know, yeah, if you don't. you have someone who will just come past and like do the light tweaks instead of you doing it. And then eventually you're like, I've, I've been a DOP before, let well, me tell you. In the world of LED, it's so much simpler now where you don't have to have as, you know, you don't put the scrims in the lights and you don't have to have as much diffusion and, you know, switching from day to night, you don't have to change from HMI lights to tungsten lights. You'd literally just push a button and the color temperature changes. So it's easier that way. But there's still nobody to teach you no. <laughs> until you're standing on a set doing it. And then paid. you're getting yelled at by someone. And like, you're getting Please. yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> Just a simple press the button. I know, But right? where's the button? Yeah, where's the button? <laughs> I had one guy years ago uh, in like a big 18K, first day on set. And why he had to change the light bulb, I have no idea. But you have to keep in mind that these light bulbs are like $2,500 to $3,000. And if they're not seated properly, when the light struck, it'll blow the bulb. Yes. It happened. And I don't know why, whatever happened, why the best boy or somebody more experienced wasn't changing the bulb. I have no idea. I can't even remember. But 
I was so angry. <laughs> I wasn't that bad, but it's like, why is this guy changing yeah. the bulb at this freaking light without having somebody more experienced? Anyway. Definitely. Yeah. That, that overarching teacher. Cause I mean, it, it's one of those things that uh, actually may, maybe you can let me know. Is there ever placement in a budget to be like, okay, well, here's a little bit of extra room. This person is just a, a green grip or a green LX or no, so so if you no. manage to get hired, you have to have very experienced people who will know I have to have this person's back. Otherwise, yeah. you're taking a more experienced person's position. Yeah, I mean, in the non-union world, maybe there might be a little bit more flexibility, but that's why we've been encouraging the the different unions to get more of training programs in the various departments. Um, you know, if you want to be a hair and makeup person, there are schools that you go and learn to be a makeup artist, you go and learn to be a hairstylist, and you get you know, you have to have your hair license. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's easy. They do trade tests at the unions, but like you were saying with grips and with gaffers and grips and lighting and even props, like there isn't. So the unions need to train their people, yeah. um, in these various departments to then, because once we get down to needing extra grips or whatever, it's dispatch, we yeah. call dispatch and they send us out 10 guys or five guys or two guys that take the call. Yeah. There's no, there's nothing there that says they're experienced or they're not. One thing I find really interesting about that, actually, and it's something I mentioned with a choreographer. Um, it, once you're in the union, a new world sort of opens up to you. So mm -hmm. like all these training, they do have some trainings to, if you're like, okay, I'm a grip, but I want to go into lighting and they have certain courses. Yeah. But what would be awesome is the inclusion of the people who actually want to get into the union and having those accessible to them. So it's like, okay, well, you do all these different courses. I know with lighting, they actually have a test that you can they do and get know. into yeah. it. But uh, once you complete these five different courses, you should know enough to survive your first film set that you get pulled onto. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, question number four. When hiring creative heads, especially from different nationalities, what qualities do you prioritize? Are there notable differences between American and Canadian creatives? Hmm. Ideally not, but there is. Um, Does it go more to the tax incentives? Well, I... I mean, we try to hire as many Canadians as we can and residences, people, and this is union or non-union, yeah. residents of the province that you're filming in, be it British Columbia, Ontario, whatever, you, because then you're going to maximize the tax credit. Whether you're Asian, Hispanic, white, doesn't matter. Yeah. You are a resident of British Columbia, you try to hire the best person available that is a local. That's... Yeah you know, first and foremost, if you can't find it there, then you try to look outside and you bring them in from Winnipeg or Calgary or Toronto or Quebec. You, you bring somebody in to try to at least get some of it, but then you're looking at, then beyond that, if you don't find somebody experienced enough or the yeah. position to, then you, you look to the U S and, um, I don't know if that's really answering the question per se, but it sort of does. It's a, first and foremost, we look inwards for, British Columbia right yeah. now before we yeah. try to hire other people. Ha absolutely. In in terms of creativity and experience, it depends between Canada and the United States. There's been historically more 
projects in the United States that have given a bigger that have given more um, abilities or more options for people to to work. So, you know, like if you got, you know, the production designer that did that did, uh, uh, you know, the Indiana Jones movies versus somebody here who's done a television or five television series. If that's who they want, then you know what I mean? Like no. that person's going to have, there is a, there is a difference. Yeah. Um, not in every department. Um, but us in BC, we were kind of raised like in the eighties when movies started being made here. Yeah. Over 50% of the crews were coming up from the United States. They taught us how to make movies and television. And then we just kind of graduated and, and just kept learning and learning and learning. We were very influenced by the British, you know, uh, people coming over from from England and shooting in Vancouver and the Americans coming up. So that's how we've learned. That's why we have third ADs, because that's a British system, as opposed to the Americans that have second seconds. Oh, yes. Okay. So I, I have seen on the DGC website that, that there is a position called a second second. Yeah. That's something that I don't really notice here, except for, do they sometimes use it when they do second units? Yeah, it'd be like a second yeah. unit, but it's very rare that it'll be called a second second mm-hmm. on a Canadian show. Um, we have first, second, and thirds. That's what's in our enshrined in our agreement. But the third AD is pretty much a second second, but it's different like when you're watching credits, you almost know that a show's either been shot in Canada or the UK. If you hit the third AD, uh. <laughs> if you see second, second, and then okay, by and large, it's probably been shot in the United States. I think even Australia has thirds. Yep. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, influence of the British, how the British started. Interesting. No, that's really interesting. Okay, cool. So it's good to know we do have creatives here, the but it seems more so that there's just more. More chances, more more film shooting in America at a higher caliber that gives more experience yeah. to creatives over. Yeah, there. if you and I use this example when I've asked this question too. How many HBO shows have we had in Vancouver? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> Not, Not a, a lot, lot at all. You know, like we we don't have Game of Thrones. Yeah. We don't have like we don't have them. I mean, we're getting The Last of Us, which is fantastic. Yeah, and that's a huge but they're bringing certain people in. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't want to I don't want to downplay our creatives because there's so many amazing good ones. Um but at certain levels there is a difference. Would you say for someone starting out then would it be more valuable for them to go to somewhere like Toronto or try making their start in LA simply to come back here or is there a realm that it's like Really try working your way up. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to say that. Um, I don't want to say that because creative is creative, yeah. right? It's subjective, and you know there is nothing saying that I can't hire you as a production designer, and you're going to do just as an amazing job as any one of the Americans. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing saying that at all. So I don't want to say that you should go to the United States. I mean, for actors, you know, there's been, I mean, how many actors that have started here and done well here and gone to LA only to have to get jobs to come back here because they get leading parts because they're considered an LA hire versus a Vancouver hire. There is that stigma. Um, A number of them, Toronto as well. But, mm, you know, I've had this debate or this conversation with a costume designer friend of mine who is as every bit as talented 
as American designers. Um, but she doesn't get the opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't get the opportunities. Be- and I don't want to say because she's Canadian or because that is, it's just the availability of the projects that she's had access to yeah. or to be considered for are not necessarily as big. You know, there's another designer here, a costume designer who was lucky enough to do um, a franchise of very big films, mm-hmm. um, US-based films. And it's taken her leaps and bounds all over the world, which is fantastic. But that percentage is very slim. Very slim. Dang. So even once you get high up in the ranks, you were still fighting for that like 1% chance yeah. to, to, to get taken other places because i went and when i moved here i told myself the same thing i was like okay i'm gonna try to make myself a name in uh in bc and then eventually i can go back to australia because the australian film population is so slim as well and it gets pulled over from canada and america before it comes there so i was like if i come make a large name here then i can go back home i'll go with you yeah (laughs) i'm I'm happy to go with you (laughs) no it it will be beautiful you and me yeah (laughs) Okay, uh, well, let's speed through these ones. Six, uh, have you noticed a change in the distribution of production, uh, producing credits over time? Distribution of product, producing yeah, credits. Yeah, and this one's interesting. You know what? Let's skip that one. Well, well, yeah. yes, and uh, I have a theory. Okay, so when, you, when people, and I get asked this question, why are there so many producers on a television show? Mm-hmm. You watch a television show, broadcast, streaming, whatever, yeah. it's like a laundry list and it never stops, it never mm-hmm. stops. Yeah. Over two-thirds of them are now called writing producers. And they will give co-EP credits or if they're like, like on my current, my most recent show, the only two, there were two executive producers. Mm -hmm. One was the showrunner and one was the show creator. Everybody else, oh, actually, no, three. The third one was the one that sold it to the network. Okay, so those three were executive producers. Everybody else was either a a co-EP or or some other, but they were all writers. There were only two of us, I think only two, no, three of us that were producers one was a post producer myself as the line producer and the producing director all the other producers save those three that were eps that created the show or the key showrunners were writing producers and there was eight of them wow yeah so that's how television has evolved and in the the, because they feel that they're producing the show i mean some of them because they will write it and then come to set and then produce it on the ground with us. So mm-hmm. they're working through writing changes and they're working with the director on line changes or mm-hmm. they're working through on picking locations and that sort of stuff. And then more often than not, they do carry it through post, yeah. but not not that often because they're now back in the writer's room doing the next. Um, in In features, it's pretty much stayed the same from my experience i may be wrong but um in features it's pretty much stayed the same but that's that evolution of the writing producer has really grabbed on and is it one of those things that they're going because i guess when i'm watching the credits i've never noticed them uh particularly announce that it is writing producer they don't okay so it is just they like don't. we'll see like eight different or right different so then what and... you do is you go to imdb and you go writers and then you go producers oh look similar names <laughs> you know and those are the the writing pro- and it's really a television thing um when they've got writers rooms you know when you look at 
you know, shows like White Lotus or Yellowstone or whatever, those producers are different um, because Taylor Sheridan writes everything. Uh, Mike White writes everything. Um, so anyway, that that's how I think the producer, the list of producers has kind of changed um, over the years. Definitely. Okay, and we'll, we're running out of time here, so let me leave you with this question. I got all the time in the world. Oh, perfect. Okay, cool. Well, you know what? Maybe we'll just go through the rest of these, <laughs> and uh, we'll just cut it all together. Um, I'm very curious. Uh, where do you want to go from here? What's, what's your end goal in film, or is there an end goal? I've been asked that, too. It's like, do I feel that I'm kind of at the top of where I want to be? I enjoy what I do now. For the longest time, it was a real love-hate. Now I'm back in the more on the love side of things. Um, I'd like to travel more and do projects in other countries. Yeah. Um, I'd love to go to Australia. You know, Hungary is like a huge, Budapest right now is a huge uh, production center. I'd love to shoot in the UK. I'd love the opportunity to, to travel um, and do this business in other places. Um even if it's just going to Toronto, like I've done a show in Calgary, but I've never done a show in Toronto, like just to see how things are different yeah. and how to, just how different they are yet at the end of the day, the product is still the same. Definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think at one point, you know, if I had the opportunity, I'd maybe like to work at a, in a corporate side at a studio as a production executive or just not long term mm -hmm. because you've got like five or six shows under you and it's like it can give you a headache and the phone never stops ringing <laughs> but just to learn that side of it yeah to get bit. that extra experience yeah in, in a different setting and yeah i mean it can only improve you more as a producer then you 100%. know what to expect from yeah your corporation side of things. 100 percent. yeah and they're all so different so you know, I, I think I, and to have kind of a full-time job because <laughs> yeah. it's real a feast you know, or famine. It's year round. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's year round. I know that, yeah, I get two weeks holidays yeah. or whatever, but uh, yeah, being uh, self-employed freelance for 33 years has had its pluses and its minuses. Yeah. Most definitely. Do they hire producers as an hourly or I, I know it's probably like week by week, but so in television, yeah. I get hired episodically. Okay. So I get X number of dollars per episode. Yep. And then it's, so if we're doing 20 episodes, multiply it by X, and then it's paid as like a payment schedule weekly gotcha. over the entire show. Um, there are some shows that will pay weekly. Um, you know, you have your dollars per week. It's been a while since I've done a feature, and but the last feature I did, the producer was on a fixed deal, so she made... X and then it was just spread out over yeah. the length of the show. Um, you know, prep shoot and then part of wrap. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no hourly. And, and then like, if I do a budget for somebody, yeah. then, you know, it's like, okay, here's, here's a fee for, here's it. A fee for yeah. it. You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Squash a rumor for me. Sure. Uh, if a producer saves money on the budget, they get a percentage of <laughs> long gone. Ah, okay. <laughs> Production managers used to get them too. So before I became a production manager, um, they called them under budget bonuses. And way back when, like we're talking mid nineties, like I started pr production managing in 1999 and they were gone by then. Okay. So uh, I, I've had, I've had a bonus where they paid me an extra week of rap mm -hmm. for n no work. Um, you know, it's like, okay, you're done, but we'll pay you, you know, another week. 
for free, basically. But I've never had, if you're under by X number of dollars, you get 2% of that. Exactly. Yeah, because of what you said before. You save $8 million and then you're like, why are you saving $8 million? Well, exactly. <laughs> like, it kind of defeats the point. I mean, yeah. Well, okay. It defeats <laughs> the point for me. Yeah. It doesn't defeat the point <laughs> for other people. Uh, so I'm not going to lump myself in the group with the other people, but it defeats the point. Like, you know, if you're $500,000 under and you get 2% of that, that's, you know, that's a significant, that can be a significant amount of money. 100%. You know, it's only 10 grand, but still, um, it's a significant amount of money. But then that 10 grand, in my mind, I could have put on the screen and given them 30 more extras, or we could have added another layer of set dressing, or, you know, they could have got that thousand dollar skirt versus the forty nine ninety nine skirt. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like yeah. it. That's who I am. I'm not everybody's like me. No. And one question that was sent in by one of your pupils, uh, oh Marvin Malwar. It was one of the the office PAs on our show back in the day. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, what he was curious about, he remembers uh, spending time. Late, late at night, where you would go through individually, line by line, just circling things, crossing out. I'm assuming it was in a budget sense, where you would uh, go through and just really meticulously go through the budget. How much into the micro dollars? Not micro dollars. Let's say like like if it's a ten dollar thing, yeah. how how nitpicky do you get into that realm? Yeah. Uh, I know what he's referring to. Okay. Um, and if it's something you don't want to comment on, that's completely No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I will comment on it, yeah. but I just, how I'm going to phrase it. So, um, I am OCD where if I give notes on something mm -hmm. to be put into a schedule or a budget or whatever, I expect those things to be put in the way I want them to be put in. Yeah. Because ultimately I'm the one responsible for that document mm. to whomever that is. Yeah. And in this particular case, I had given notes on something. It had come back and I was checking mm. my notes to what that new version was. Mm. And unfortunately there were discrepancies and it wasn't a first time thing. Mm -hmm. It had happened on a number of occasions with this particular person. So I now am going to go through it with a fine tooth comb okay. to see if my notes have been Im implemented because then that's when I give my notes, that's what's in my head. So if I added $10,000 to the, the construction budget and that $10,000 is not in mm -hmm. the, the, the person it got missed or whatever, then now I'm going to spend that 10000 because that's what's in my head. But if I don't see what's on the page, that it didn't get it. You see what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So I don't suffer fools mm -hmm. either, Carl. That's a problem that I have. And it's <laughs> in this industry, it's tough. It's like I expect people who are being paid a fair wage to come in and know their jobs and do their jobs to the best of their ability and, and deliver. And when I see not weakness, that's not the right word, but when I see that things aren't, then I can at least step in and help them. Yeah. Like if we get a second AD that hasn't done a call sheet before, mm -hmm. I'm going to teach them how to do it if their first AD hasn't taught them how to do it. Yeah. You know, and I'll walk through and say, okay, this is how we do it. And these are the reasons why, mm -hmm. as opposed to just going through wrong, 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 wrong. Yeah. Like, cause that's not, that's counter counterproductive. Yeah. So I think that's what Marvin was referring to. Gotcha. And it's, 
because whatever document that was, with the notes that I'd given are in my head. Mm-hmm. And if they don't get translated or transposed properly, then it's not going to be good. Yeah. You know, if like if it was an extras breakdown, for lack of a better description, we said we agreed to, you know, a hundred background instead of two hundred, but it's still on the on the extras breakdown is two hundred, and then that's what gets budgeted. That's that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's a big deal because then that goes to costumes and hair, makeup, and 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 then it's just on that trickle down effect. It's so. very interesting. Like I, I relate it back to at least what I've seen in the ading world, where I've told producers or I tell producers and I tell uh, just people that I'm working with. It's uh, sort of I say like the the no bullshit side of things, where yeah. it's like if you think that there's like a slight problem and you don't notify me about it, it could have a massive ripple effect. Yeah. And that yeah. ripple effect can create something monumentally yep. catastrophic on yep. film. Yep. So it might be a little thing, but to you it's a little thing, like five or a hundred people background, yeah. but that that's how much more costumes you're going to yeah. bring. That's uh, more transport, potentially more food. It's more tents. It's yeah. more hair, makeup, mirrors. It's more chairs. Like it's, it, forewarned is forearmed okay so that but if i don't know about it i can't help right and tell me now that you know oh there's a crack in this set or whatever it's okay let's fix the crack in the set before it becomes a a big crack and half the set falls down definitely right like the when i burnt down the studio had i known i didn't personally burn it down but we were doing (laughs) fire effects but had i known that certain products were being used to protect the set or whatever knowing I may have been able to be ahead of it Definitely. or, you know, and research it and went, oh, we shouldn't use this. We should use this because I may or may not, I may have experience in something that went the other way. Yeah. And it's, it's all about at the end of the day in every interview I have. And for me, it is all about communication. I've always, I've worked with people that keep their cards closed, that don't mm-hmm. share, that don't talk to other people it's going to fail. Yeah. If I don't talk to you or if I don't talk to a department head or I don't talk to a dolly grip, you know, and the dolly grip's telling me, oh, that the the thing has been done, you know, loose or whatever. It's like, okay, best boy, let's get the dolly swapped out. Let's do something. Like, it's just, we all got to talk to one another because again, at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. Yes. Finish that project and deliver the best that you possibly can for the time and money that you've got. Yeah. No, that's, it's very well said because it, it is a industry that thrives on communication. It's very yeah. interesting to see when people don't want to communicate. It's yeah. you're missing one slice of the pie, and you want the whole pie at the end of the day. Or, or they feel so <laughs> insecure, or they're not secure in the position they've been put into. That it's like rather than reaching out and asking for help, they just try to take it on themselves, and then it either sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And I would sooner have somebody come in and say. I've never done a call sheet before. I've never done a production report before, or I've never been an assistant prop master before. I'm like, okay, so let's figure out how we're going to support you. Yeah. Perfect. Because again, at the end of the day, that person's going to learn, ideally, yeah. and retain. <laughs> yeah. And then they're going to go off and be, so when I hire them five years from now, I will have put in the work to get them there, then I don't have to do it later. Definitely, definitely. And you see, and it, it must also be fantastic to see that growth when you get to that next. Show. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like, absolutely. This this? <laughs> I, we had an AD on a million little things in season three, the height of COVID, who I just had on my last project, and she came in first job 
as a second on a million little things in nightmare land with things changing left, right, center, up and down, backwards, forwards. We're shutting down, whatever. And I just had her on my last show. It was amazing to see how much she grew from then till then. And she stuck it out. She wanted to quit on a million little things because I remember the time we're all sitting around this boardroom table and it was like... It was like a war room. Do this, yeah. do that, change this, location that, find this actor, who's yeah. in town. But And she just, she was like going to explode. Yeah. And to see where she is now, and she can handle it and manages yeah. it and is ahead of those things. Oh. Oh. It's, it's something I look forward to seeing yeah. uh, in my time in the film industry as yeah. well. And, Anyway, thank you so much, Wayne. I you. really appreciate you for coming on here and spending the time to 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 more so teach us uh, about your world and how we can get into your world. One thing to finish us off with that I've done for other producers or directors or uh, yeah anyone I've had on the show, I like to put a little piece of work that you felt most passionately at the very end of this, whether it be a trailer, uh, you, if you have a demo reel, even maybe a link to your website is plug, whatever you would like your email. Someone sees this and they want to hire Wayne Bennett as the producer or line producer of their next show. Where do we go? Well, I don't have a, I don't have a link. I don't have a reel. Uh, just, I don't know. Contact my agent, Ralph Berge, at <laughs> at uh, Independent Artist Group. Awesome. Well, we'll put the link down there, and uh, and when they want to get in touch with you, they will. But That'd be great. More than anything, thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thanks for awesome. having me. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>